2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Dezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Dezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zerah, Zuriah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Stay with me. Lord, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful to be known by you, to be called by you, to be loved by you. God, this morning as we've gathered together as the church, God, we're mindful of our privileged position to be called children of God. God, through our music already and the prayers and scriptures that have been read, God, our hearts have been stirred and reminded of just how great you are, how mighty you are. And we've been reminded of your holiness, how you are categorically and fundamentally different than we are. You are the creator and we are the creature. And yet, God, we're reminded that in your holiness, you loved us so much that you sent your own son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sins 
and to make us your people. So God, this morning we worship you. This morning we honor you. We love you. And we pray, God, that as we spend time now in your holy word, that God, we would honor you by listening attentively. God, we pray that you would honor your word by opening our hearts to receive your word today. So Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Would you move in our hearts, move in our midst? Help us to hear clearly your voice. We love you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. Sometimes people will say of someone else that that person has the Midas touch. Have you ever heard that, the Midas touch? The idea comes from Greek mythology where King Midas was said to turn everything that his hand touched into gold. So whenever he'd put his hands on things, those things would turn to gold. And so when we use that expression sometimes and we say, oh, that person has the Midas touch, The idea is everything that person touches turns to gold. Everything that that person puts their hand to turns out to be a success. It's blessed. It flourishes. This person flourishes everywhere they go. I was thinking about that this week because when you study the books of Samuel, you feel at times, and we're going to feel it today, like the Midas touch could just as easily be called the David touch. For here is a man who essentially everything he touched, everything uh, he did in his life seems to always end the same way with stunning success. As a teen, you'll remember that David picked up a sling and a few smooth stones and turned them into killing machines as he destroyed Goliath, the giant from Gath. Then as a young man, he was made the leading general over the entire nation of Israel, and he only led them to victory after victory. Even when he was on the run from King Saul for many years, he was always one step ahead of his pursuer. And during that time, he ended up developing this large and loyal following. And now here, after he's become king of Israel, his track record is one of stunning successes. Now, there is a major difference, of course, between the Greek myth of King Midas and the historical King David, other than the obvious point that one is fiction and one was real. The other big difference is that David's string of successes was not ultimately the result of something inherent in him. Two times the author of our chapter that we've just had read for us makes this clear first in verse 16 and then repeated again in verse 14, where the author says this, do you see it there in the text? He says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The author is making it clear that yes, although it looks like there's the David touch and that everything that David does is a success, and it looks as if this is because of David's doing, the author is saying, no, 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 no. Behind all of the successes." the sovereign and powerful and mighty hand of the Lord himself. See, as we've learned in our studies of Samuel, David is God's king. And because of that, God is working through David and God is blessing David and he is giving victory to King David over all of his enemies. 
Now, our first hint in the story of David that, that he might be God's king or that he actually certainly is God's king actually comes from the book of 1 Samuel. It's all the way back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. When God says of this young shepherd boy that he was a man after his own heart. Uh, David was unlike King Saul. He was different. He was unique because he was a man after God's own heart. But nowhere is it more clear that David is God's king than in the chapter right before the one we just read today. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with his king, King David. You could think of it as promises that God was making to his king. And as we talked about when we were studying chapter 7, there are really three aspects to this covenant, which is called the Davidic covenant, or three promises, you could say it that way. So God looks at David and he says, David, I am going to, number one, make for you a great name. That's in verse 9 of chapter 7. So you will be regarded as one of the great ones of the earth. Number two, God says to David, I am going to plant my people Israel in a permanent place where they'll never be uprooted. And it's a place of perpetual peace. You'll have rest from all of your enemies. And then most shocking of all, the third aspect to this covenant is that God told David that he was going to have an eternal kingdom. That David's dynasty would rule forever over the people of God. And we learned in chapter 7 that these promises that God made to David had implications for David's own lifetime and David's own reign as king over Israel. But these promises also had such far-reaching implications that they could only ever be fulfilled through a future Davidic king, someone the Jewish people would come to call their Messiah. And so we learn that what God promised would be partially realized in David's life, but would only fully be realized through the life and the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. And therefore, this morning, as we look at what God did through the reign of David, through his kingship, you and I are invited by the scriptures to actually look beyond King David to King Jesus, Israel's ultimate Messiah. With that said, let's begin now to look at what God did through David. Now, chapter 8 is, is a bit of a summary of the rule and the reign of David. So it's not that every single battle that we read about is happening just one after another like dominoes and there's nothing else going on. This is rather, again, a summary of David's victories over all of his enemies. And so chapter 8 functions in 2 Samuel as a display of of how God began delivering on the promises that he made to David in chapter 7. Again, as I mentioned, one of the promises that God made to him was that God was going to plant his people Israel in a permanent place of rest. I'm going to now read the promise for you. This is 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So family, here in chapter 8, God is beginning to deliver on that promise. 
through his king David, God is planting his people in Israel and he is giving them rest from all of their enemies. Now this chapter consists of two parts. The first part depicts David as a victorious king and the second part as a just king and that's how we're going to break up chapter 8. So verses 1 through 14 depict David as a victorious king. I'm sure you saw that and observed that when we were reading the text. In these 14 verses, the author records victory after victory on David's part. There's no mention of any defeat. It's just a string of victories. In total, David subdues eight different kingdoms. Now I'm going to put a map up on the screen here for us to to see this. I want to show you the kingdoms that David subdued. Now we tested this before service and realized that the back half of this room cannot see this map. There's literally no way. I don't care if you have 20-20, maybe even 15-20 eyesight. You can't see it. So we were actually going to scrap this and I wasn't going to show it. And then I thought, you know what? Let's just go with it. Because if nothing else, it's going to at least remind us of the benefits of sitting in the front of the class. So (laughs) everybody in the front's like, I can see that. But I'll try to make this as clear as possible. I, I just want you to kind of understand the, the geography generally of where these different kingdoms are. So you don't have to see this perfectly, but there is actually purple on this map. Some of you in the back can't see that. It's right above a little bit of water down there. And that's the city of Jerusalem. So this is where David's ruling from, is the city of Jerusalem. And to the left of it is where the Philistines lived. They were lived on the coast there. And in verse 1, they're the first peoples here that David has victory over. So he goes west and he defeats the Philistines. Now after that, in verse 2, David is told, or we're told that David has victory in the east over the Moabites. That's in verse 2. So now he's had victory in the west. He's had victory in the east. In verses 3 and 4, and then also in 7 and 8, David is way up in the north there kind of at the top of the green region. I don't know if you can see it in the back, but I circled it there. It's the kingdom of Zobah in verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 8. And after that, David has victory over another people in the north, the Syrians of Damascus. So I circled the city of Damascus there in verses 5 and 6. After that, David has victory over a third kingdom in the north, all the way at the top of this map. map it's called Hamath or Hamath. David has victory over them in verses 9 and 10. After that, in verse 12, we get reference to the Edomites or the kingdom of Edom down in the south there, kind of the southeast from Jerusalem. And we read about that in verse 12 and then 13 and 14. After that, also in verse 12, there's mention of the people of Ammon, the Ammonites. Notice they're a little northeast of Jerusalem. They're up against the Arabian desert. And then finally, there's one southern people that David has victory over that's referenced in verse 12, and it's the Amalekites, the people of Amalek. So I went through the trouble of showing you all of that here on this map because I want to just make two points to us before we actually get into each of these individual verses. The first point is this. I wanted you to be able to see that David was given victory in every single direction. He was victorious to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. No matter where this king of God went, he was victorious. The nations became his inheritance. 
And in this way, David is functioning as a prototype of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah is the victorious king par excellence. In Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm about King Jesus, God the Father says this to his son. Check this out. This is Psalm 2, 8 and 9. He says to to his son, Jesus the King, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So David, again, is given victory over the nations in every direction he goes. And God is using David as a model, as a prototype, to demonstrate that through David's greater son, Jesus... Victory would be given over all the nations of the earth. At this moment in human history, as we're sitting in church, Jesus is making peace between the peoples of the earth and their God through the blood of his cross. The gospel is going out in churches across the world and through individual Christians sharing their faith. So the gospel is going out all over the world right now. And guess what? It is a gospel of peace. Right now, God is offering peace to every single person. And he's saying, listen, all of your sin can be dealt with. All of my judgment can be removed because Jesus died for your sins. Receive Jesus and we can be at peace. But family, someday soon, time will run out for this present evil age. And Jesus is going to return to the earth in glory and in power, and he is going to judge all the nations. The scriptures speak of this, where Jesus is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth, and his rule will be fully and finally established across all of planet earth. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. God's king is utterly victorious. He has victory over all of the nations. But the second thing I want to point out, and we'll put the map back up on the screen just for a moment, is that David actually extends the borders of the kingdom of Israel to the borders that were promised to father Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, and then later confirmed to Moses in the book of Numbers and Numbers chapter 34. God promised to Moses that his people would would ultimately inherit the promised land and it would go all the way up to the Euphrates River, which is just above that northern kingdom of Hamath there. That's the Euphrates. And in Numbers 34, God tells Moses that the the kingdom is going to extend all the way down to the brook of Egypt, which is all the way at the bottom left of this screen that you see there. And so, God had promised this hundreds of years before that they were going to inherit this beautiful land. And guess what? They had not yet received it. But it was through David, God's anointed king, that the promises of God that would bring blessing to his people are actually realized. It comes through God's king. And in the same way, it is through God's anointed king, the Lord Jesus, that all of his promises to his people are fulfilled. They'll never come about through anyone else. They come about through Jesus. Promises like the forgiveness of our sins. Promises like eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 1.20 we read, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Speaking of Jesus. 
So let's look now at David's victories since we have this background. Look at verse 1 again. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. So David's victorious, first and foremost, against Israel's nemesis, the Philistines, who have been terrorizing them at this point in their history. Methegamah is likely another name for the city of Gath, which is one of the capital cities of the Philistines. It's where Goliath, the champion, came from. He was from the city of Gath. In 1 Chronicles 18.1, which is a parallel telling of this same story, we read this. It says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. So God gives David victory over their historic enemy, the Philistines. And David does not completely exterminate the Philistines, but from this day forward, ever since David, the Philistines are never again presented in the Bible as a serious threat to Israeli peace. The next kingdom is Moab in verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So what is going on here? Well, after David defeats the Moabites, he takes the soldiers and he divides them up. He measures them out into three equal groups. Two of these three groups are executed And one of these groups is spared, it says, and they become subject to David from that day forward. And they begin bringing tribute from Moab to David. Now, this seems really brutal to read this, that there's these three groups that are separated and two of them are executed. And it seems brutal because it is brutal. This is really, really intense. But we should always exercise caution whenever we attempt to judge people from different times and different places. When you stop and think about it, in the modern world that you and I live in, when one nation is defeated by another nation in war, there are many things that can be done to neutralize the threat of the defeated nation going forward. For example, you can destroy all of their military equipment. You can destroy their planes and their tanks and their submarines and their ships You can destroy the factories that they produce them in. You can destroy their shipyards that they make their boats in. You even can take steps economically to really, really hinder that nation from rebuilding and posing a threat again. After major world wars, the nations of the world have done this. Um, And so you can put economic sanctions on them if they begin to rebuild. So there's a lot of tools at our disposal in the modern world to say, these people have been defeated and we're going to now limit their threat to us going forward. But in the ancient world, when warfare was hand-to-hand, okay, that's how combat was done. It was hand-to-hand. You couldn't just win a war and then go and turn around and release or let loose all of the other enemies or the other nations fighting men. If you were to do that and just release them all, they would very quickly go back, regroup, and pose a threat against you once again. And so the options were generally in the ancient world that you would kill the soldiers or in some cases you would enslave them so that you could keep control 
over them. Therefore, many scholars suggest that David's decision here to not execute all the soldiers, but to spare a third of them, would have been perceived as an act of incredible mercy in that time and place. We have to remember that these Moabites were not innocent non-combatants. This was an enemy army that was set against David. They were, they were committed to his destruction and the destruction of his people, the nation of Israel. They were David's enemies at war with him. And so David is just in eliminating his enemies. He could have taken that route. And the one-third who were spared almost certainly didn't expect it. I mean, let me ask you a question. When you read the text here, what did the third of the soldiers who were spared do in order to be spared? What did they do to receive mercy? The answer is nothing. There's nothing in the text that says, oh, this is why David spared this third. It's not because they deserved it. It's not because they were better than the other two-thirds. No, they, they were every bit as much of David's enemy as the other two-thirds of the Moabite soldiers were. And what that means is that it was something in David rather than something in them that caused them to receive mercy. I wonder this morning if you can see here a picture through David's actions of God's mercy toward us in Jesus. Like David, God is perfectly just in eliminating his enemies. And yet, the most shocking thing in the world is that God extends mercy. In Romans 5.10, we read that all of us have made ourselves God's enemies through our sin. And yet, only two verses earlier, God tells us what he's done for us despite our sin. This is Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So family, rather than obliterating his enemies, Jesus died for his enemies. He laid down his life. And it's not because we deserved it or because we somehow earned it. No, it's something in God rather than something in us that caused him to grant us mercy. Let's see if you can find it here in Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy, so now we're talking about mercy, the very thing David showed. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. So God is, he's rich in mercy, Paul says. But the reason for it, the cause behind it is not because you and I deserve it. It's not because of something in us. No, no, no. Paul says, because of God's great love. So God shows mercy not because we deserve it, but he shows mercy because that's his character. He delights in showing mercy. As Christians, this is the foundation of our hope and the foundation of our faith. That God offers us mercy in Christ, regardless of what we've done, in spite of what we've done in our life, and that we can find forgiveness and eternal life in him. 
And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're just visiting the church today, maybe you're exploring Christianity, I, I, I really want you just for a moment here just to stop and just consider the magnitude of the heart of God. According to the Bible, every single human being has made themselves God's enemy through their sin. After all, what is sin? Well, sin is you actively working against God's good will in the world. So when we sin as humans, what we are doing is we are setting ourselves against God and against his loving rule over the creation that he cares for. And yet, rather than God just giving all of us what we deserve, oh, you want to rebel against me? Oh, you want to sin against and hurt people that are created in my image that I love? Well, I'm going to bring judgment down on you. Rather than God just doing that and saying, I'm going to give you justice and give you what you've earned, God is rich in mercy. And his heart is so big that he says, you know what? I'm going to send my own son, Jesus, into the world to rescue sinners and to bring you into a relationship with myself. Family, God is rich in mercy. As we read this text, we can't help but notice that you and I, if you're a Christian here today, we are the third line. We're the third line. We didn't deserve it. Execution is what we deserved, and yet God extends mercy. So David defeats the Philistines, then he defeats the Moabites, and then he subdues the kingdom of Zobah in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. We'll stop there. Now, just a quick word about David hamstringing 1,600 out of these 1,700 chariot horses. And I want to say something about this because I would imagine that it's not just PETA that's bothered by that thought. I'm an animal lover. Many of you are probably animal lovers. And the thought of hamstringing all of these horses is a little bit terrifying. But it's important to remember that David at this point, he's very, very far to the north. Zoba was way up top there. So he's very, very far in the north. And David probably does not have the capacity to care for these horses and then ultimately after the battles, bring them back to Jerusalem. Beyond that, the law restricted Israel's kings from multiplying too many horses so that they would not depend on their military technology, but rather that they would depend on the Lord. And so David spares 100 of these horses for usage in his military going forward. But rather than killing the other 1,600 horses, David makes a strategic tactical decision. He hamstrings the horses, so he spares their life, but he hamstrings them. Therefore, they are no longer useful for military purposes. They can no longer be used by this kingdom of Zobah to get back on chariots and come and attack David's army again. And so we, what we read here is a strategic military decision from David at a time in human history that's much different than our own. Now, Hadadezer survived the defeat, and this king had friends. And his friends did what friends often do. They stepped up and they got David's back, or I'm sorry, they got his back against 
David. Look at verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Now, unfortunately for the Syrians who show up to get Hadadezer's back, they fare no better than Hadadezer did when he fought David. David's victory over the Syrians is massive. He kills 22,000 soldiers and decimates their army. And after that, David then establishes a garrison in their capital city, the city of Damascus. So now they've got David's troops in their capital going forward. And we read that they paid tribute to him from this day on. And so the whole thing blows up in their face. From this day forward, David has subdued these kingdoms and they're making hefty payments of precious metals to their new sovereign, David, in Jerusalem. Now, David's decisive victories over these two related kingdoms in the north actually have an effect on a third northern kingdom that's even further to the north. Look at verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son, Joram, so he's sending the prince, to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. So Hamath is actually the northernmost kingdom that we had on that screen earlier. He's north of Zobah. He's north of Damascus. And his kingdom stretches to the great Euphrates River. But the text tells us in verse 10 that this man had had ongoing war with this guy, Hadadezer, who ruled a kingdom to the south of him. And so when David defeats his enemy, Toy sends his prince, his son, down to David to bless him and to give him a bunch of wonderful gifts. What did he bring to him? Well, it's articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. And so although Hamath was not defeated by David in battle, They are paying tribute to him. They see David for what he is. He is the true power in the region. So I want you to get this picture in your mind right now of what's going on in history. David is subduing kingdoms all around him. And tremendous wealth is pouring into Jerusalem. And family, I want you to notice what King David does with the wealth. Look again at verse 11. He says, These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Now, this is pretty incredible when you think about it. Rather than taking all of the treasures and all of the spoils as his own reward for defeating all of his enemies, David takes these things and then he dedicates it to the Lord. 
Now, what does that mean that David dedicated it to the Lord? I mean, does it just mean that he, he sort of like laid his hands on the gold and prayed a prayer of blessing over it? Hey, Lord, thank you for giving this to me. And then he went out and bought a yacht and a new helicopter? No, not at all. We know from other passages of Scripture that David took all of these treasures that he was given, these golden shields and all of the, the gold and the silver and the bronze, and he actually set it all aside for the building of the temple and to be ornaments within the house of God. The kingdoms around David were paying tribute to him as the king, but David knew who Israel's true king was, and so he gives the tribute to the Lord. Similarly, the scriptures call us as the people of God to give the first fruits of all that we receive to the Lord. In other words, as the Lord blesses all of us materially, we are called to give a portion of that back to him. Why would God do that? Why would he ask us to do that? Well, one of the big reasons is that through giving of our, our resources back to the Lord, it's a practical, of, uh, practical way of acknowledging that God is in fact our true king. It's a way of saying, yes, I went out and I worked really hard and I earned this money, but you know what? Ultimately, the only reason I have any of this is because God himself is providing for my needs. So just as David acknowledges that the Lord's giving him these victories, God is blessing him with victory over this, we need to and ought to acknowledge that all that we have, all that is good in our lives has come to us from the hand of God. And therefore, giving is certainly an act of obedience because we're commanded to do it, but it's also an act of faith. It shows in a tangible and practical way that we truly believe that God is the source of all of our provision and all of our wealth. In the Old Testament, God's people gave a tithe. Anybody know how much a tithe was percentage-wise? Ten. A tithe means a tenth. So in the Old Testament, God's people, the Jewish people, they gave a tithe of all that they received as the, this is gonna, this is gonna be shocking to some of us, but as the baseline for their giving to the Lord. It was the baseline. And they would give back to the Lord a tithe. In the New Testament, we're not given a, spe a specific percentage. Instead, we are called to give to the Lord cheerfully and generously out of what God has provided for us. It's an act of faith. The text finally mentions that David has victory over the Edomites in verse 13. It says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, when we read, and David made a name for himself, our mind should take us back to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7-9. When God promised in this Davidic covenant, he said, and I will make for you a great name. As God is now giving David these victories over these kingdoms, David's name is being renowned. In Chronicles, it says that all these surrounding peoples are beginning to fear David. Great fear and dread sweeps across these people. God is giving a great name to his king. 
Now let me point out one final thing in this section before we move to the last couple of verses. And it's this, that there's this emphasis over and over again on David subduing his enemies. In verse 1 it says, after this David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. In verse 2 it says, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. In verse 6 it says, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. In verse 11, it says, These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he what? He subdued. And finally, in verse 14, it says, And the Edomites became David's servants. So David's subduing all of these peoples. And the question then becomes, what was it like to be under David's rule? I mean, to be subdued under a conqueror sounds like it could be pretty terrible. And history teaches us that it almost always is. When you're conquered by somebody else, it's usually horrible. But the question is, what was it like to come under David's rule? And we get an answer to that in these final few verses. Now, the text shifts from the victorious king to the just king in verses 15 through 18. Look at verse 15 again. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Stop right there. What was it like to live under the rule of David? Well, it was like living in a place where justice and equity, or righteousness, that Hebrew word is often translated righteousness, where justice and righteousness are the common experience in the land. The text literally says it this way in the Hebrew. It says, David was doing justice and righteousness. The way that he was leading and judging and ruling over his people was a commitment to doing justice and righteousness. And who experienced the justice and the righteousness? It says he was doing this to all of his people. And that's what justice means. That's what it looks like. Justice means there's fairness for everybody. Injustice is when partiality exists. This half of the room gets these things and this half of the room doesn't. Justice is to say we're all treated fairly. And David here is doing justice and righteousness for all of his people. As human beings created in the image of a just God, Every single one of us long for justice. We want to be treated fairly. We all long to live in a just society. We see this in our criminal justice system. Right? We want every single person, no matter how old they are or how young they are, how rich or how poor, how educated or uneducated, regardless of their skin color, their ethnicity, their religion, or their gender to be treated fairly in a court of law. We long for that in the United States of America. We talk in this country of all sorts of types of justice. We talk about social justice, racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, and the list goes on and on. And there's really something to that, that that concern for justice, again, comes from the fact that we are created in the image of a just God. We long for a just society. And here, 3,000 years ago, in the ancient Near East, 
God establishes his king in this nation where he rules over all of his people with justice and with righteousness. And so was it a bad thing to come under the rule of David? Was it a bummer to come under the rule of David and to be a part of his kingdom? The answer is a resounding no. Life under David's rule was a blessing. And that blessing would continue under the rule of his son, Solomon, who enjoyed a a kingdom of unrivaled peace and prosperity. Under David's rule, Israel was a just and fair society. It was a place where evil was restrained and where righteousness was able to flourish. And in this way, it modeled for the world what life under the rule of God's anointed king would be like. Look at this famous prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah 9. And specifically now, we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, but specifically now, notice how Jesus would rule. Here's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So obviously this is a prophecy about Jesus, the child who would be born, who is called God himself. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With what? with justice and with righteousness. As I said, that's the same Hebrew word translated equity in 2 Samuel 8. So with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, of course, there is coming a day when Christ makes all things new. I spoke of it earlier. It's a day when Jesus returns and he ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. And when this day comes, perfect justice and perfect righteousness and perfect peace will exist. All sin will be done away with and everything will be perfect forever. But we can't stop there. Because the good news of the gospel is not just that you and I have to sit and wait until that day to begin experiencing the blessings of Christ's rule and reign. No, the good news of the gospel says right now, for those of us who are in Christ, we are already experiencing the joy of freedom from the bondage of sin and the oppression of sin in our lives. Just as all of these pagan peoples were once living in kingdoms of darkness that were deprived of God's law, and they were brought into a kingdom of righteousness. The scriptures tell us that if you're in Christ by faith, you were once under the reign of sin and the tyranny of sin, but you are now under the reign of righteousness, and it's a blessing. Here's Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Dropping down a couple verses later, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But he asks a question, he says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul is saying, man, the things that you used to live under and do, those are shameful and they led to your death. They bore no fruit. 
But he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So family, right now, as a Christian, you are already experiencing the blessings of Christ's rule and his reign because the destructive power of sin has been broken in your life and you are now free to live in the blessings of righteousness. Let's consider one final question and we'll close. It gets to verses 16, 17, and 18. The question is this, how did David administer justice and equity to all of his people? Was it single-handed? Did David somehow have more hours into the day than the rest of us? Was he able to accomplish a lot more? No. How did David administer justice and equity to all his people? Well, in part, it was through the officials that he set over his kingdom. I won't reread 16 through 18 because they've been read for us, but I'll summarize. David had Joab over his army to protect the people and to maintain peace. David had Jehoshaphat as recorder and Sariah as secretary to handle the administrative duties of the empire. David had Zadok and Ahimelech appointed to lead the nation spiritually. These were his priests. And he had Benaiah over his personal bodyguard to protect the royal family and keep stability in the kingdom. Finally, he even had his sons involved. They're called priests here, or as 1 Chronicles 18.17 puts it, they're chief officials in the service of the king. That word priest here can be, uh, or is thought by many uh, to have had a much broader meaning than a priest in the temple during these early stages of the monarchy. So David's children, some of his children, were officials in his court that were helping to administer justice and equity in the kingdom. And I'll end with this idea. That there is a similarity right now for us at this moment in human history. Because part of the way that Jesus brings about his justice and his righteousness in our churches, in our communities, and in the world right now is through each of us living out our faith in our spheres of influence. Right now, we are ambassadors for Christ We're helping people to be reconciled to their God and experience peace with him. Right now, you and I are the light of the world helping to lead people out of the darkness. Right now, you and I are the salt of the earth helping to stimulate people's thirst for righteousness through the way that we live our lives. And so brothers and sisters, you and I have a high and a holy calling. You and I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has saved us from sin and its tyranny in our life and its end result, which is death. And he has put us to work in his kingdom of justice and righteousness right now. And so may the world through our lives and through our families and through our church see the joy and benefits of belonging to King Jesus through each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.